And welcome to Overthink. The podcast where two friends who are also professors share philosophical perspectives on all manner of things. I'm David Peña Guzman. And I'm Ellie Anderson. And, you know, David, we just started this episode like sounding all professional and stuff because we are, in fact, recording in a real live podcast studio, not in our closets on Zoom. But wow, it has been a morning. (laughs) (laughs) A morning from hell. So we have been struggling with this fancy equipment in a recording studio in the middle of the Pigalle neighborhood in Paris. We just burnt about two hours (laughs) battling with technology that we don't understand, but Ellie kind of does much better than me. So thanks, Ellie, for finally getting it to work. Well, and thanks to our audio <laughs> editor, Aaron, for like hopping on a last minute Zoom call to help us. Because in short, this is an anti-advertisement for Studiomatique in Paris. <laughs> We're going to burn them. <laughs> they, just like, they just like had somebody open the door for us for the studio, taught us nothing about how to use this technology. Again, we are philosophy professors. We are not professional um, audio people. So yeah, we thought we were going to start recording like two hours ago and we didn't. And we we're hoping that all of the audio uh. now is going to be fine. Okay, we'll get into it though. Just, David, take a breather. <laughs> I need a whole yoga class right now. <laughs> I know David was so stressed out, which is so rare for me. Oh my God. Um, Well, you know, I'm actually a little nervous about this episode topic too, in addition to the stressful situation, because it's such a hot topic right now and we're learning more about it every day. And so I'm super excited, but I've also been a little nervous about it because there's tons of scientific literature on the topic, which we're not going to be able to do justice to. I just want to remind everyone we are first and foremost a philosophy podcast. So we'll do our best to make some claims about how psychedelic research relates to philosophy, specifically, including Jean-Paul Sartre's experience with the lobster. (laughs) The lobster. (laughs) And I want to start with something I learned as we were researching this episode, which is that the term psychedelic was only coined in 1956. It was coined by the English psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond in a letter to Alice Huxley. And this was actually two years after Huxley's classic book, The Doors of Perception, was published. That was in 1954. So Huxley didn't even have that term available to him when he was writing this book. Yeah, and this is something that comes up in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which I've read and I've taught in a class entitled Mind, Brain, and Culture, and my students loved it. Mm -hmm. But he talks about how in the 1950s, when there is this sudden interest in psychedelics, one of the big questions that emerges is what do we actually call these substances that have very clear psychoactive effects? And the term that we now have, psychedelics, was actually a latecomer in those discussions. But initially, there was a back and forth between experts in this field where they proposed different terms that if they had one out, nowadays we would be calling this something else. And I will want to come back to that debate over terminology a little bit later in the episode. But first, let's do a little quick tour of the history of psychedelics and psychedelic research. Because Poland talks about the fact that right now we are in the middle of a psychedelics renaissance. The chemist Albert Hoffman first synthesized and ingested LSD in 1943. And that led to an explosion of initial research in the 40s into 
psychedelic mm-hmm. compounds. And so that's the first, let's say, that's like the naissance of <laughs> our interest in these drugs, at least from a scientific perspective. Naissance just means birth for those I, of you who don't speak oh, French. David's yeah. been spending too much time in Paris. Yikes. <laughs> ah, sorry, sorry. Um, so yeah, that is the, the naissance. It's the naissance. <laughs> you mean birth. <laughs> it's la gestation. <laughs> anyway, so it's, it's the birth of widespread interest in psychedelics. Again, from a Western scientific perspective, of course, they were, they've been used in other context for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Then you have a first renaissance in the 1960s, of course, with the countercultural movement. Then after the 1960s, there is a dip in interest in psychedelic research, uh, partly because federal law intervenes and bans research into these substances, but also people start expressing concerns about, quote unquote, bad trips and a lot of the mental health issues that maybe surround them. And so a lot of people start thinking about psychedelics as dangerous. And now it's coming back with a second renaissance. So it's the third wave of interest. Yeah. And the resurgence of psychedelics in the public consciousness is really fascinating. It has so many factors that we aren't going to really be able to focus on in this episode. But I want to mention that we actually did an episode on intoxication a couple of years ago that ended up being Mm. mostly about psychedelics. So I would recommend checking that out if you haven't listened already, because there we talk quite a bit about ayahuasca and the ancient Greek Eleusinian mystery rites, more or less this hypothesis that a lot of the ancient Greek philosophers were on psychedelics. Yeah. And even though that episode was called Intoxication, we ended up talking about drunkenness only for a few minutes. Um, So we were obviously already more (laughs) interested in psychedelics, which maybe explains why we now wanted to go back and do a whole episode uh, on the subject. But let's talk now a little bit more about the term psychedelic itself. So it means soul manifesting. And in the letter to Huxley in which he coined the term, Osmond wrote this little rhyme, to fathom hell or soar angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic. Delos to manifest, end of quote. And Osman <laughs> later stated that he liked the term. I know it's cute, right? It is very cute. Um, yeah, he liked the term because it suggested that psychedelics enrich the mind and enlarge vision. And this is happening at the time that the debate over terminology is raging. And Michael Pollan talks about how in the 1950s, especially in the first part of the decade, the term that people originally proposed for thinking about what we now call psychedelics is psychotomimetics, which basically means mimicking psychosis. Because the idea was that when you take a psychedelic, you're essentially inducing a psychosis through this substance. And so you have a window into the workings of pathology, really Mm. psychopathology. And the particular condition that many researchers thought that it mimics was either schizophrenia in some cases, or more commonly delirium tremens, which again is a kind of state that you go into, especially when you withdraw from a particular substance that has created dependence like alcohol. So when you're quitting alcohol and you have, you know, those seizures, those bodily tremors, that's what people at the time and even now referred to as delirium tremens. Now, the problem that people face with this is that they realize that there's a big difference. And that is that nobody speaks positively about conditions like schizophrenia Mm -hmm. or delirium tremens. But people do speak positively about their experience on psychedelics. And so then they moved away from the term psychotomimetics because it's not really the same thing. Mm. 
And so that caused Or even them, if it is the same mm-hmm. thing, they didn't want to associate the two because there's a more positive connotation with a trip. Yeah, exactly. And so that positive mind-expanding quality was getting lost with this pathologizing label. Mm-hmm. And so in the mid-50s, a new term was proposed, and that was psycholytic, which means mind loosening. Um, And and so this is where it moves from a clinical context to a therapeutical context, because people realize that when somebody takes a psychedelic substance, their ego defenses go down. And uh, there is a lot that you can do with that in the context of talk therapy. People are more willing to talk about deep traumas, about early childhood memories. So it loosens the barriers that our ego normally throws up in the way of uh, therapeutic relief. And so people started using it, especially in places like LA and San Francisco, as a way of speeding up recovery or aiding the therapeutic encounter. That was already being used? Yeah, yeah. In the 1950s, people were using psychedelics Mm. in the therapeutic context, but it was very new. And the problem is that at the time, people weren't able to really distinguish between the therapeutic use and a recreational use. So sometimes you had these like therapists giving it and calling it therapy, but in what clearly seemed like a recreational context, like, oh, everybody come to my fancy house in LA and let's just all do LSD and we'll say that it's a kind of collective therapy. And so there were some problems around that. Anyways, finally, I'm getting to the last term here. In the second half of the 50s, that's when the term psychedelic is introduced. As you point out, Ellie, by Humphrey Osmond in a correspondence that he had back and forth with Aldous Huxley. And what they really liked about this term, once it was proposed with this little rhyme (laughs) that you read us, Mm -hmm. is that it avoided references to quote-unquote madness, but also it avoided limiting it to a therapeutic setting. And so they really wanted something that captured the importance of perspective. It's something that expands the mind, but in what direction it expands it will depend on the perspective that you bring into the experience. And so the term psychedelic was meant to capture that. Today, we're talking about psychedelics. How do hallucinogenic experiences differ from everyday perceptions? What do they teach us about the nature of reality? And what are the promises and risks of psychedelic-assisted therapies? Psychedelics raise interesting questions about consciousness, the nature of experience, and even knowledge. For instance, do we think that insights we gain during a psychedelic trip are true or false, right? That goes back to that question about terminology that you mentioned, David. Is there a breaking down of psychic barriers that happens through psychedelic experiences and allows us to have a direct experience of reality itself without like the usual veils of illusion? Or is it more like inducing psychosis, which uh, is removing us from the world as it really is? Yeah, and I mean, not just questions about consciousness, questions about reality. Are we really walking through the doors of perception, as the title of the of that famous Huxley book indicates, uh, walking, that is, into another realm of reality that potentially could be said to justify new forms of mysticism, maybe some forms of panpsychism, who knows? Or is all of this just a chemically induced hallucination that doesn't really reveal anything about the nature of reality? It just reveals something about our central nervous system. 
Well, and on top of that, what is the difference between the hallucinations that we have while we're on psychedelics and normal waking perception? Mm-hmm. And there's an influential theory around this that has come to the fore in neuroscience recently, and that is the view of Anil Seth. Anil Seth is a cognitive scientist who has developed what we might call a hallucinatory theory of perception. Because for him, the distinction between the hallucinations that we have while on psychedelics or you know, in certain psychotic experiences is different only in degree from our normal waking perception, not different in kind. And let me say a little bit about why he thinks this is the case. So Seth argues, and this is based on, you know, cutting edge neuroscience, what we know about the brain, that perception is predictive. And predictive is not in the sense of future oriented, but in the sense of modeling, a statistical notion of prediction. Our brains are continually modeling our world by creating inferences to the best explanation that are constantly being updated and adjusting our understanding as needed. So for instance, let's say that I see um, something white out of the corner of my eye and I presume that it is a door. In fact, we, there is a <laughs> there white is a door, door in the yes, studio right now. So I'm, yeah, I'm using an example there. <laughs> Your brain is doing well right now, Ellie. It's doing great. Thank you. You're <laughs> confirming. Um, but then if I turn my attention to that door, like if I, instead of just seeing it out of the corner of my eyes, I actually look toward the door, that prediction is going to be updated. Either it's going to be sort of bolstered by the fact that, yeah, it still seems to be a door, or it's going to be changed. Like, oh, it's actually a mattress up against the wall. (laughs) And I can tell that because the texture doesn't match with um, that like sort of prediction for what a door would be, right? So there's a sensory, there are sensory inputs that we're receiving all the time. And our brain is kind of updating its best guess as to what those sensory inputs correspond to at all time. So in this sense, both our everyday perception and what we usually think of as hallucinatory experiences, both have the same source, right? And that is this like predictive machinery, we might call it, of the brain. It's just that perceptions are a little bit more closely connected to causes in the world, whereas hallucinations have lost their grip on the world. Hallucinatory experiences, when we're on psychedelics, for instance, are less closely connected to the sensory signals and the constant updating of them. And for our listeners who don't know this, Ellie has been lobbying for everybody that she knows to read this Anil Seth book. She <laughs> loved it. And she, I think, is probably right that there is a lot of really great insights to it, to the point that I now need to read it in its entirety as well. Okay, so I don't actually know, though, because I did really enjoy this book when I read it over the summer. But then now I'm in Copenhagen at the Center for Subjectivity Research, and there's been a lot of pushback to it. Um, Dan Zahavi, the director of the center, thinks that the book has some like gaping errors in it. And he sort of convinced me about that as well. So I think <laughs> You're I was so impressionable. No, I think I was just I'm, I'm impressionable at first. And uh, you know, in the sense that so I guess that means I'm impressionable. <laughs> but I think I was reading the book with um, like a lot of excitement and energy. Yeah. And then once I put on a more critical hat through having discussions about it with, you know, like somebody who had been thinking about it from a more critical perspective, I came to see that some of the problems were more persistent. So anyway, we don't need to go into that now. I will just say, like, I did enjoy the book, but I maybe uh, don't have quite as strong uh, 
you yeah, know, yeah, endorsement no. of well, it as I did I, over the summer. I was a little surprised that you were so uh, gun ho <laughs> about it because I, I have read some of his work before and I know that he is basically a computationalist and a Bayesian about the brain, meaning that he sees everything as like mathematical predictions based on statistics and calculations. And I was like, this doesn't seem like the Ellie that I know yeah. uh, from like, phenomenology of embodiment and affect. Um, so it was surprising to me, but you know, there, there are probably a lot of resonances <laughs> since it's about our physical embodied experience of the world. Yeah, definitely. And I think part of what I liked about it, because you're right that it doesn't seem like the kind of book that I would initially gravitate towards, but uh, part of what I liked about it is that he actually, as a neuroscientist, really grants that philosophers have been developing similar views for a very long time. And I found that to be refreshing just because I think a lot of times neuroscientists yeah. fail to integrate the insights of philosophy. Speaking of which, though... There's a different view of the relation between hallucination and perception that we get in Merleau-Ponty, who's a phenomenologist whom um, Seth is kind of influenced by, but they differ on this point about the relation between hallucination and perception. Because Merleau-Ponty is really insistent on the fact that there is a fundamental difference between hallucinatory experiences and regular, yeah. you know, perception in the everyday sense. And he does quite a few times talk about mescaline in his book, The <laughs> Phenomenology of Perception. We'll come back to what he says specifically about mescaline a bit later in the episode. But I just want to mention his general view of why perception and hallucination are different. For Merleau-Ponty, hallucination and perception are different modes of consciousness because hallucinations lack what he calls the plenitude and internal articulation of the things out there in the world. It's as though the objects that we encounter in the world present themselves to us as having other sides that we cannot see. And the further we probe, the more information we get about those objects. But when we hallucinate, we sort of have just this vague and inarticulate sense of things around us. Like, let's say I hallucinate a shimmer out of the corner of my eye. Once I actually turn my attention towards that shimmer, it's liable to either remain the same or disappear. It doesn't really present itself to me as something that I can see from various different perspectives. It doesn't have what Merleau-Ponty calls little perceptions that sustain it in existence. Yeah, so there would be no virtuality to it, um, or at least the object wouldn't reveal new facets of it that would allow you to interact with it in more meaningful ways. And so hallucinations in this view would be somewhat disordered, phenomenologically speaking, uh, from Merleau-Ponty's perspective, because they don't have that stability that comes from learning more about them over time. And that notion of disorder is also at the center of some contemporary neuroscientific research on psychedelics. And I'm here thinking in particular about the work of the researcher Robin Carhart-Harris, who really put psychedelics on the map of neuroscience in the last couple of decades by exploring the way in which psychedelics essentially affect uh, neural pathways, neural structures, so on and so forth. And at the center of his entropic theory of psychedelics is this notion of disorder or what he calls entropy. So normally, our waking experience of the world is maintained by a basic sense of meanness or of 
I am here, I am now, a very rudimentary sense of self that informs our relationship to the world. And that, according to Carhart Harris, is maintained by a very complex set of neural dynamics that are centralized in what is known as the default mode network. Now, the default mode network, or the DMN, refers to a set of cortical areas, so parts of the cortex in the brain. Don't uh, worry, guys, we're going to get to lobsters. Stick yeah. with us. Stick with us. <laughs> Ellie's got you on the lobsters. I've got you on the default mode network. Uh, yeah, I just I just want to make sure we're not losing no. our non-neuroscientifically inclined girlies because I'm one of them. And I don't and I don't mean girlies in like a sense Shit. that like girls cannot do neuroscience. <laughs> what is I mean happening? that in like uh, the boys can be girlies too. I mean uh, people in general. Well, but we all know that this is actually the juicy part and people are loving my discussion of the DMN. The, so, the girlies love the neuroscientific parts. <laughs> yeah. So again, we have this set of interconnected areas in the cortex called the DMN, and that is activated when we are sort of just like existing without really doing anything particular. So when you're not trying to solve a problem, you're not trying to talk to other people. When you're, when you're driving just, on the freeway home from work the same way that you go every day. Or even when you're just like laying there and experiencing the world. Uh, so think about your most basic sense of self. That is the achievement of the DMN. It is our default subjective state and it's our sense basically of subjective presence. That's how we could describe it. Now, this state of subjective presence is default, according to Carhart Harris, but that's not to say that it is primary or basic. In fact, again, it's quite complex because in order for us to have that sense of subjective stability, all these things need to happen and be in place in mm. the default mode network. The default mode network itself has to be organized relative to its own parts and it has to enter into the right kind of dynamics with other circuits and networks in the brain. So there's a lot of organization that is required for us to get that. We're complicated creatures. We're complicated creatures, and that's exactly where psychedelics kick in. What psychedelics do to the human brain is that they minimize the normal operations of the default mode network and they decouple not just its internal components, but also the network itself from its normal collaborations with other brain networks. And so it introduces disorder, which is why I sort of latched onto that from your description of Merleau-Ponty's theory of perception versus hallucination. And this is where I think somebody might be thinking, well, this does mean that psychedelics is giving us an experience of the real world as it is, because what it's doing is removing that sort of uh, what we might call the ego of the default mode network or this like sense of self that helps us persist in the world. Of course, it doesn't seem like that's necessarily a valid conclusion to draw, because who's to say that the default mode network is less close to reality? than the disruption of the default mode network, right? They're just two different ways of relating to reality. And I, for the record, I think this is actually where the views of Merleau-Ponty and Anil Seth are compatible, because even though they differ on the 
question of whether hallucination and perception are fundamentally different modes of consciousness or only different in degree. For both of them, there is certainly a sense that all experience is mediated on the part of the subject who's actively creating their relation to the environment. You know, actively created doesn't mean that you have to be aware of that in a reflective sense at the time, but like that is what we as organisms are doing. That's a really important clarification, Ellie, because for a Carhartt-Harris, the point is not that we return to reality when we do psychedelics, but he does believe that there's a kind of return of sorts, where essentially our brain returns to a more primitive, disorganized, entropic state. Mm. Um, and he says that this is where we actually find a spectrum between non-traditional modes of perception and consciousness, like psychedelic use. He also says when we are in REM sleep, for example, that's also a more primitive because disorganized mental state. And he also says the same thing about the early stages of psychosis, mm -hmm. that what all of these things have in common is that they create a hyperplastic hyper-connected, wild brain that is not as constrained by all these rules of how it should be behaving. And actually, that's also what babies experience. Mm. Babies have this, uh, they haven't, okay, now I'm speculating, but they haven't <laughs> developed the default mode network, right? In, at least in the way that adults have, I presume. But the part that's not speculation is that another one of my favorite books that I read this past summer and completely took at face value, <laughs> um, because there's a difference for me between a beach read that I'm enjoying and then something that I am subjecting to scrutiny as a philosopher, was Alison Gopnik's book, The Philosophical Baby. She's yes. also a cognitive scientist, yes. and she talks about how babies are basically tripping at yes. all times. Yes, yeah, and it's because their brains are making more connections uh, without following the same rules. And the whole point here, and this is going to connect back to your discussion of Anil Seth's theory um, of the brain as a predictive machine that allows us to gain more information and then correct our perceptions and our predictions, is that for Carhart Harris what happens when all this hyperconnectivity starts taking over is that our mental priors start breaking down. And mental priors is just another way of talking about expectations and predictions that we normally have as part of the normal functioning of our mature brain. Mm -hmm. So think about like facial recognition. You know, I see like two round balls with a line in between them. My brain is sort of predisposed to interpret that as a face. But when I'm on a psychedelic trip, it's almost as if my mental prior doesn't kick in or doesn't kick in in the normal way. And either I don't see faces when I should be seeing them because there is a person in front of me and I'm like, oh, there is a faceless creature in front of me. I'm tripping. Or I see faces when I shouldn't be seeing them. Like I'm looking at the grass or at the clouds and suddenly I think that there is mm -hmm, a person mm -hmm. there. Or you look in the mirror and your face is the scariest effing thing you've ever seen in your life. And then I know that it's actually a perception and not a trip. <laughs> now that we've Discuss the relation of psychedelic experiences to perception in everyday life. I think it's time to tackle a question that 
I think about a lot when it comes to psychedelics. And this is actually a question that we have kind of already asked before, but I want to ask it again and think about it a little bit more, which is about whether these experiences give us greater access to reality or not. Because you often hear people talking about them as though they do. I think that's a big assumption, at least in the circles that I run in that in Los Angeles. In. Yeah. Uh, oh, I see. I see. Yes. Yeah, where it's like, expand your mind by going on psychedelics, like get out of your ego, where the assumption is that the ego is limiting mm-hmm. you from seeing reality as it really is. Um, and I think the idea is that there, in breaking down our usual filters and structures of consciousness, our ego and our hangups, psychedelics let us see the world as it really is. And if this is the case... This is what interests me about this question, because if this is the case, then it would seem like philosophers should be more interested in psychedelics than anyone else, because Mm, it is our mm -hmm. job to try and understand reality (laughs) as it really is. It's like our job description (laughs) to start doing psychedelics. (laughs) I I literally, I mean, I think I had a student which tells you a little bit about where I teach, but I think I had a student when I was teaching at Pitzer who like actually really thought that. Um, I was like, I cannot <laughs> sanction that as your professor, but it is a, it is an interesting question, right? Yeah. Um, because then on the other hand, some might suggest that psychedelics, by making us hallucinate, actually remove us from the real world and put us in the space of illusions. So the question is, which one is it? Are psychedelics giving us greater access to reality or are they removing us from reality? Or is it neither? And how seriously do philosophers need to take psychedelic experiences? Yeah, well, I mean, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be able to give a definitive answer to whether it gives us more or less access to reality well, in this stay, podcast episode. Stay tuned for the Patreon episode where we, <laughs> where we crack drop that question and, and then record. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. It's not going to happen. <laughs> or is she? Uh, <laughs> I mean, actually, our recording um, drama this morning made me feel like I already had a bad trip. So <laughs> um, I think I'm good on that. But, but what we can do, even if we can't crack that mystery, is share some of the questions and perspectives that philosophers have developed around this. Yeah, because indeed, a lot of philosophers in the 20th century and today have been very interested in what psychedelic experiences can teach us. I always think about that line from a Foucault interview where he says, we need to do more drugs and we need to do good drugs. <laughs> and I mean, for by good drugs, he meant probably psychedelics. And we know that he Definitely. dropped acid. Tell us super um, quickly about yeah. that, David. Um, oh, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this more in the Patreon bonus segment. Okay, that um, is what we're actually doing in the yes, Patreon bonus. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But I mean, he came to California and I should say went to California since we're physically in Paris right now. Yeah. But he went to California, dropped LSD and... With then, a professor from Claremont Graduate University, which is part of the consortium in which I teach in yeah, yeah, who took seriously psychedelics. Definitely. And it, it really changed Foucault's perspective. Again, I'll say more about this in the bonus segment, but it led him to shift gears in his own research by putting on hold the trajectory that he had envisioned for the history of sexuality. Oh, um, okay. And then switched gears and wrote an entirely different version of the history of sexuality than what he had originally intended. Okay, okay. And then we have the lobsters. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, it's, it's obvious I've been excited to talk about this. Jean-Paul Sartre was injected with mescaline by his old friend, who's a psychiatrist, at a hospital in Paris in January 1935. So Sartre basically was really interested in what kind of insights mescaline could provide. And so he underwent like this very professional seeming trip with a psychiatrist in the 30s. And this was part of Sartre's 
interest, which was just developing at the time in phenomenology, which he had started studying just a couple of years earlier. So this is like before he wrote Being and Nothing. This is actually before he wrote any of his books. And Mescaline seemed like a pretty obvious point of reference for Husserl's claim that we need a new way of looking at things. And so phenomenology is a school of philosophy that is all about developing a new way of looking at things by going back to the things themselves, by trying to remove the usual assumptions that we bring to our daily experience. And so taking Mescaline for Sartre seemed like you know a good go-to. But Sartre ended up having quite a bad trip. (laughs) And there's an interesting Paris Review article about this where I'm getting uh, some of this from. And he said that there was like a very sinister experience that he had because there there was a distortion of all of these different sensations. And famously, he saw... crustaceans. (laughs) He was like tormented Uh, by lobster-like creatures that were scuttling beyond his field of vision. And Sartre himself had pretty bad eyesight. And the effect of this trip on him was that he continued to see these lobster-like creatures for a very long time after. So this was like classic bad trip. It was bad Mm. during the time, Mm. but then he also had what he had like a kind of mental health crisis. Oh, wow, like leftover effects. Yeah, yeah. And then that included, but was not limited to seeing these lobster-like creatures for a very long time afterwards. Wait, how long of a time? Are we talking about hours? Are we talking about no, months? No, 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 no. Um, for sure weeks. Oh, wow, Maybe still. even longer than that. Okay. I, I think it might have been a year or two, but I'm <gasps> seeing in this Paris Review article, it only says for weeks. So Beauvoir okay. writes about still, this in her- Still, weeks is a long time. Yeah, and Beauvoir wrote about this in um, her memoirs. Beauvoir scholars sometimes refer to Sartre's lobster face. <laughs> <laughs> I am entering my lobster era as a philosopher, although now I wonder whether Deleuze was on mescaline when he said God was a lobster. Dude, I don't know what Deleuze was on, but it probably was something. Um, well, and also, I mean, he did have some like mental health challenges as well Yeah, yeah um, that were not yeah. related to psychedelics specifically. Yeah, yeah. But okay, so quick last thing on the lobster though. <laughs> So I mentioned that Merleau-Ponty talks a little bit about mescaline in his book, The Phenomenology of Perception. And he quotes, this is so amazing to me, he quotes Jean-Paul Sartre's unpublished self-observations while he was on mescaline in The Phenomenology of Perception, which is a 500-page kind of masterwork of phenomenological philosophy. And he's like, here's what my buddy Sartre said about his experience on mescaline. And I'm just going to read you a little quote from this. So Sartre said the following, I see a world of swellings. It is as if the key of my perception was suddenly changed, as if I were made to perceive in C or in B flat. At that moment, all of my perception transformed. And for a second, I felt myself somehow equipped such that I could not perceive otherwise. I was overcome with the belief that the world is as such. So he had like these this really strong perception. It sounds like definitely synesthetic as well, right? He was seeing things, but, you know, kind of almost hearing them like in the key of C or in B flat. And when he was in this state, he couldn't kind of think himself out of it. He Mm -hmm. was convinced, like, no, this actually is how the world is. But then he says, later, another change took place. Everything seemed simultaneously pasty and scaly, like certain large snakes that I have seen uncoiling at the Berlin Zoo. And then I was seized by the fear of being on an island surrounded by snakes. 
Okay, so he's hallucinating lobsters. He is having synesthetic experiences, and the world is snaky and scaly mm-hmm. for Sard. Yeah, uh, I mean, anytime you describe a bad trip, it's always wild like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just like making me think of my original trip with psychedelics, which I described in the episode on intoxication, um, um, which was also quite negative. And for me, any negative experience, any slight discomfort just got amplified and magnified such that it took on a psychological quality. Mm. So, you know, if like the environment was dark, my mind and my thoughts became dark. If something was abrasive, I became abrasive. So I I think this also raises questions about how to talk about psychedelic trips. Yeah. Um, Tell, Tell us what you think about that. I I don't really think of psychedelics as giving us direct access to reality in an absolute sense as opening the doors to another realm. Mm -hmm. But I do think that they open some form of door to ourselves and also to the relationship between experience and language. Because there has been some research around this about how our experience of psychedelics, literally the content of the things that we experience depends on the language that is floating around in our culture to make sense of those experiences. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So your experience to certain cultural tropes, to certain cultural metaphors about these substances will take the reins of the experience of doing the substances themselves. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a point that uh, Levi-Strauss had already made in the 20th century concerning hallucinations. He says that when people have a hallucination, they will always describe what happens in the hallucination by reference to what he calls the latent cultural discourse Mm, of their society. So, for example, if you're in an animistic society where objects have a, a soul or an anima, then you will describe the content of your hallucinations as animated things. Whereas if you live, let's say, like I did in Mexico, in a Catholic society where there are gods and angels and demons, you will describe your hallucinations in terms of like demons coming out of the shadows or, you know, angels who descended upon me to give me grace. Um, And so what really draws me to this discussion is the fact that our experience of the world is not just constructed by our subjectivity, by our nervous system, by our body, but also by culture itself. Mm -hmm. And that raises a question of how do you talk about a psychedelic trip? Is it beyond language? And even what's the genre that lends itself to its description? So for example, should you write a philosophy treatise about your trip? <laughs> yeah. Should you write a novel? Should you write a memoir? Should you write a poem? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, how to capture the indescribable. Yeah, yeah. And can you, right? Because I think there is something so private. For all of the talk of like ego death as being an integral part of psychedelics, I feel like there is a really private dimension of the experience that is incommunicable. Mm-hmm. And that can have really long less lasting effects, you know, on the way that you are actually perceiving the world. And I, yeah, I wonder to what extent those incommunicable experiences are shaped by that latent content of our culture or not. I mean, certainly we know that also the same is true of mental health crises. 
the experiences of people with schizophrenia, uh, like the content of the voices that talk to them are super different from the US than they are in India. I remember reading about that. I might have actually mentioned on a podcast episode one time, but that there's a lot more schizophrenic voices among Americans that encourage them toward violence. Hmm. And, you know, that's related to like the sort of violent nature of American culture. But, you know, I also Hmm. wonder whether there might be some dimensions of that psychedelic experience that are not that, that are shaped okay sure psychedelic experiences are shaped by the latent content of our culture but i wouldn't want to say that they are reducible to that like oh, i no, think no, there no, would no, be yeah. of course some transcultural dimensions to psychedelic experiences because i think you do hear like some pretty consistent narratives throughout time i mentioned that we talked about ayahuasca and its use for a very long time in indigenous communities in our intoxication episode and so you know whether it's ego death or just like this opening to different ways of perceiving things, that animism, that kind of coming alive of the world and a different relation mm-hmm. to the world. Like I would say that those, yeah, aren't just determined by our culture. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I mentioned that I taught this class on mind, brain and culture where we talked quite a bit about psychedelics and some of the transcultural research into the psychedelic experience tries to identify those cross-historical constants. Yeah. Um, and some of them are, of course, a greater sense of unity with nature, uh, a decreased sense of egocentricity. Mm-hmm. But also, there are some very basic phenomenal features of the psychedelic experience that recur, like basic geometrical shapes being hallucinated, certain kinds of arabesques being experienced when you look at grass or when you look at the clouds. And so there does seem to be some basic things that you can rely on psychedelics to produce in you as an experience. But at the same time, that's not really what people report about their trip, right? People usually report the meaning of the whole experience. Mm-hmm. And that's where they have to reach for those cultural tropes for yeah, the yeah, yeah. discourse. And uh, although I agree with you that there is something deeply private about these experiences that is untranslatable into language, there is also this deep desire to translate it mm-hmm, into mm-hmm. language, right? Like yeah. to, to have other people recognize this experience and uh, sort of make it real by sharing it with others. And I also think for oneself to be able to put it in the context of a narrative of one's life is really essential for a lot of people. This is why there's so much focus in therapeutic contexts on integrating the experience. And I think that also speaks to just how the way that we treat the psychedelic experience after the fact shapes the psychedelic experience itself as well, right? Um, Like what sort of effects is it having afterward and how are we able to integrate it or not integrate it into our lives? Enjoying Overthink? Please consider supporting the podcast by joining our Patreon. We are an independent, self-supporting show. As a subscriber, you can help us cover our key production costs, gain access to extended episodes and other bonus content, as well as joining our community of listeners on Discord. For more, check out Overthink on Patreon.com. Earlier this year, the New York Times published an article entitled, What Does Good Psychedelic Therapy Look Like? Where the author talks about what psychedelic-assisted therapy entails. So, 
very briefly, think about a meeting between a classic Western clinical encounter, so think doctor-patient relationship, and a shamanistic spiritual journey uh, involving a guide and a follower. So what happens in this therapy is that you basically agree to participate in a clinical trial, and then you have a number of sessions ahead of your experience of taking the drugs with the researcher who is in charge of the study, and they explain everything to you. They talk about the risks and also about what to expect. Then you take the substance. It can be psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, ketamine, so it can be a classic or a non-classic psychedelic. Mm -hmm. And when you take the substance, the researchers will make sure that you find yourself in a positive environment with a positive ambience, you know, a nice room, maybe some comforting music in the background, maybe some snacks available to you. And the clinician slash researcher will be there to, quote unquote, walk you through the journey of your uh, psychedelic experience and offer support in case you need anything, right? Like a bathroom break, a glass of water, perhaps. And at the end of the therapy session, it is often the case that you then have to have what are known as post-exposure sessions, where you integrate the experience into your sense of self by talking it out with the therapist researcher. The more I hear about this, the more intriguing it seems, right? I think this clinical context can obviate a lot of people's concerns about like a bad trip, right? Or being unsafe, et cetera. And I know it's been gaining a lot of traction among the communities that I hang out with in California. So I I mean, I wonder like how you select such a therapist for this. <laughs> do you, do you, you can't go into psychologytoday.com and <laughs> filter for psychedelic assisted therapy given the yeah, laws, right? There's a, yeah, there's a section on Craigslist <laughs> where you can find. <laughs> um, but you know, the, you're, you're actually, getting to something here because the authors of this piece in the New York Times point out that you should be very careful about yeah. choosing a therapist because, you know, bottom line is that there is a lot of quacks out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you need to ask about expertise. You need to ask about training, about methods and about past experience because, I mean, you don't want your psychedelic trip to be ruined by the bad vibes of some random quack. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I find this idea of psychedelic assisted therapy super promising, but obviously you and I are not mental health professionals. So here we'll talk about it from a philosopher's standpoint more than a clinician's one. So if you are thinking about this, we encourage you to speak with an actual expert on the subject. We are not endorsing or suggesting this <laughs> for anyone in our capacity as in as our capacity as podcasters teachers, or podcasters, yeah, or as, yeah. Or as <laughs> educators. Definitely not. Yeah. I mean, oh my God, are we the quacks? Like talking about psychedelics? I think we're the quacks. I think we're joining a very long line of podcasts that have decided to talk about psychedelic assisted therapy without being experts on the topic. So like, I guess at least we're experts on something because I am an expert on phenomenology which we have been talking about. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh my God. Well, at least we're not administering it. But yeah, so tell us more about psychedelic assisted therapy and what the, all the fusses about it and what its applications are. 
Yeah, so it is showing pretty impressive results when applied to a lot of conditions that have been resilient to the straight up pharmaceutical interventions that are typically privileged by Western medicine. Mm -hmm. So here we're talking about things like major depression, yeah. anxiety, uh, substance abuse issues, although the research on substance abuse, I have to say, is a little bit more tenuous. Really? Okay, because um, I've heard a lot of people talking about that. Yeah, and also conditions like anorexia. Okay, huh. and. And the key in a lot of this research is precisely what I talked about in connection to the neuroscience of psychedelics, which is the way in which psychedelics impact the default mode network, okay. that uh, set of cortical structures that give us our sense of self and uh, sustain our ego. And they especially target two parts of the brain that are a part of this network known as the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex. And without going into unnecessary detail, the point is that substances like psilocybin decrease activity in these areas. Now, normally, these areas are what are known as hubs, meaning that they are relay stations where a lot of information coming from various parts of the brain gets centralized, processed, and then integrated to give rise to more coherent, stable, organized percepts, thoughts, experiences, so on and so forth. And so these hubs, you can think of them as almost like Think about a ratchet system where you make some progress in the integration of information and they lock it in at a mm, higher level okay, of organization. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a great metaphor. Actually, did you I'm, come I'm, up with that? Yeah, I just did. I'm kind of shocked. Oh um, that's gosh. pretty good. That was good. I mean, you also, um, you're doing like a cool movement yeah, right like, now with your hand, which like our you're listeners ratching can't it in. see. Yeah, yeah ratcheting like it up. Lever. Ratcheting it up, I think is what yeah, I'm saying, right? Um, and and so they, they stabilize patterns of experience. And again, when you're just normally there, the activity in the default mode network is, you know, medium to high. And so it stabilizes who you are. And again, this is where psychedelics come in. They decrease the ability of these hubs to do their ratcheting function. And so neural activity starts becoming disordered, disorganized, entropic. And it leads to that hyper-connected brain state that allows us to make new connections, have new experiences, mm. have bizarre, non-traditional experiences. And that's what contributes to creating this sense of loosening our relationship both to ourselves and to the world. And this can have a significant impact on these conditions that I, I just mentioned, right? Okay. Like depression and anxiety. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so can you say more about the this impact of that decrease on the stability with the conditions that you just mentioned, including depression? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, let's focus on depression for a hot second, because what defines depression is an overstable state that is rigidly pessimistic. So when you are uh, depressed, you're just stuck in this loop of thinking, you know, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. So it creates an unbreakable cycle of thinking, which is associated with a hyperactivated default mode network. Okay. So you have negative thoughts huh. and they are over anchored or let's say over ratcheted. They're just like, too stable and you can't get out of that thought pattern. See, I don't think the over-ratcheted metaphor works there, but you could say over, yeah, they're, they're stable, they're kind yeah. of like fixed. Yeah, yeah. they're fixed. Yeah. Uh, they're ratcheted. I think that's, yeah, like they're locked in. Maybe that's yeah, the better metaphor. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, not, that's not the same as... <laughs> 
<laughs> you can get a little, little uh, too excited about the ratchet. I know metaphors. you know that. Sometimes I have good metaphors, but then I run with them until they yeah, break it's, apart. Okay, just, um, it's they're over anchored. Yes, they're over anchored, and so this is what most therapies for depression ultimately try to get the patient to do, to break out of that thought pattern, out of that negative thinking loop. And so psychedelics can aid in that. And a similar thing happens actually with anorexia nervosa, where there is mm. another pathway to efficacy, wow. uh, especially through the amygdala. Now, psychedelics also decrease what is known as amygdala reactivity. So we have the amygdala, which is about processing fear responses. And some people who struggle with anorexia have an overreactive amygdala, especially in connection to the site of food. So they see food and they, they sense a kind of fear that makes them want to stay away from it. And when they are given psychedelics, especially psilocybin, it decreases the reactivity of their amygdala so that they can be around food, uh, whether that's pictures of food or actual food, without having that gut fear reaction, which then allows clinicians to slowly reintegrate food into uh, the patient's world and experience without having that kind of resistance that would normally kick in. Wow, that's really interesting. I hadn't known that about its applications for anorexia. I've definitely heard a lot about the depression side of things. But, you know, it's it's really interesting to me just how many conditions are showing promise in light of psychedelics with success rates that far surpass those of traditional treatments. And I hear a lot of narratives about how this is like very scary to big pharma because with just like a small number of treatments, sometimes even one, mm -hmm. you can have more benefits in the case of depression than you would yeah. for like years of being on SSRIs. SSRIs yes, yes. And so I, I think there are like concerns about how our very messed up capitalist healthcare system might intervene in that. Um, because I also read the Michael Pollan book, but I read it like a few years ago and I don't have it with me here in Europe. So um, everything you said at the beginning was just kind of new to me. <laughs> but he talks quite a bit, I think, about that in the success rates in that book. Mm -hmm. And he mentions as well that the data shows that they help with substance abuse, right, which we mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. um, and also with chronic headaches, as well as helping people who have terminal illnesses come to terms with their end of life. Mm, yeah, yeah. He makes uh, a big deal about this, which I think he's right to do, the way in which especially like people with late stage cancer change their perspective on mortality when they do this. And I think this is why there has been this explosion of research into the clinical potential of, of psychedelics. But also it's precisely for that reason that I want us to talk a little bit about the risks of psychedelic assisted therapy because it is new and we're only now in the process of figuring out best practices around it. And there are some risks that people should be aware of. For instance, people with a family history of bipolar disorder should not do PAT because if you have a strong predisposition to it, then psychedelics can trigger a psychotic break. And that's a straightforward medical danger. Uh, but then there are also other risks that apply to psychedelics that don't really apply to other medical treatments. And 
In the literature on the philosophy of psychedelics, some people refer to these dangers as epistemic risks. Okay, like what, what does that mean? Well, think about what I mentioned a few minutes ago, that psychedelics are psychological interventions. They're not purely physiological ones. They change the way you think and see the world. And some people have said that they even give you false beliefs, right? Like um, a number of people go into a psychedelic experience as atheists, and then they come out on the other side talking about God. We're talking um, about how the pine tree has a soul. No, exactly. I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, I'm exactly. not saying that's a false belief. <laughs> well, but, you know, like from a scientific perspective, let's just say that, that it does give you at least a false belief relative to the worldview that maybe you had before the experience. And so there is this risk that it changes your epistemology. Or, you know, maybe you um, also go in thinking that you're a really good person. You unearth some dark desires during your trip. And then you no longer think that you're a good person. So how do we think about that risk uh, when we give psychedelics to somebody as therapy? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the question here is, is that really a harm in the technical sense of the term? Well, maybe it all depends on how you conceptualize harm. Yeah, I don't think that would count as a harm for me, but um, certainly a risk. But I think that that question then leads us to maybe reconsidering your metaphor of ratcheting, which is like it it might be it might not necessarily be ratcheting up your mm -hmm. like new affective experience. It could also be sort of like. Ratcheting, ratcheting sideways uh, or down oh, or no, redirecting. I don't know. um yeah redirecting at least right which I, I think brings us back to what we were talking about earlier uh, you know in terms of like whether psychedelic experiences give you greater access to reality or not and i think it's probably clear from our discussion at this point that we don't necessarily think so they're different ways of re relating to reality, whether it's a difference in degree, as Anil Seth says, or a difference in kind, as Merleau-Ponty suggests. And th those differences can be extremely beneficial. But that's not just because like, you are suddenly having an unfiltered experience of reality. We have about run out of time, but I want to just mention one other quick risk, which is the vulnerability that patients have when they're undergoing psychedelic-assisted therapy under the assistance mm -hmm. of another person. For instance, what are the boundaries that the therapist has to draw with the person? Are they allowed to touch, right? Sometimes like touch can be super comforting when you're undergoing this psychedelic experience, but it can also feel threatening to people. Or you might like consent to it beforehand and then not really want it when you're undergoing the trip, but perhaps not know how to communicate that. So you can see how there are issues that arise with medical ethics because you have sober doctors touching patients who are vulnerable and under the influence. And what happens if like a patient wants, say, a certain kind of touch that maybe the doctor is willing to do, but after the fact, the patient is like, well, actually, no, I wasn't really in a position to say yes to that. Yeah, no, that's a really tricky issue because a lot of people in the context of psychedelics, because they feel that sense of unity with the world, with other people, increased empathy with those around them, often seek a kind of light touch. And so there is discussion about this in the literature on psychedelic therapy, with some people saying, well, maybe like a pat on the shoulder is okay, because if you are a therapist and you withhold touch completely, mm. then the patient is in a trip with another person that they know is a real human being, right? Yeah. The doctor, who is being weirdly inhuman towards them and uh, 
cold and distant and scientific. And so withholding touch entirely can also potentially trigger a negative trip because you're like, who the hell is this person <laughs> yeah, yeah. who is not kind towards mm-hmm, me? Mm-hmm. So I, I think what I, I saw, especially in the New York Times article, is that you know a handshake is good, a pat on the shoulder that is comforting is good. Mm-hmm. Everything else seems to cross a line that we're not ready and shouldn't be ready to cross. Well, David, that's it for today. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. And for our patrons, we will see you over on the other side for our segment talking more about Foucault. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consider supporting us on Patreon for exclusive access to bonus content, live Q&As, and more. And thanks to those of you who already do. To reach out to us and find episode info, go to overthinkpodcast.com and connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at overthink underscore pod. We'd like to thank our audio editor, Aaron Morgan, our production assistant, Emilio Esquivel Marquez, and Samuel P.K. Smith for the original music. And to our listeners, thanks so much for overthinking with us.